0: Over the next one to two years, thinking up to 2021, if growth does slow down, you want to have your investments in some of these quality stocks that are going to be able to ride it out.
1: Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Hello, and thanks for joining us today. With new economic data in hand, Mark Race, Chris Heeks, and Chris McCaney discuss strategies that help investors balance risk and opportunity in the portfolio. They also take a broader look at the state of the ETF industry, and they'll be offering you actionable advice to evaluate the more than 900 solutions from nearly two dozen ETF providers. But before we hear from our experts, please consider subscribing to the BMO ETFs podcast on your preferred podcast player, and share it with your friends and colleagues.
2: Hello, I'm your host, Mark Ray. I'm the head of product for BMO GAM Canada, covering mutual funds and ETFs. We're joined today by Chris McCaney and Chris Heeks, both portfolio managers on our ETF desk, specializing in our equity exposures and as well our derivative strategies. So thanks to both of you for joining us again this morning. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Good morning. So let's get right into things. Start with a market update, and then we'll uh, we'll turn to some of the May and year-to-date low numbers, since uh, we've got an opportunity to review the month end now. So markets continue to defy the underlying economic and, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. If we look around the world, we're seeing more coronavirus hotspots emerge now with Brazil and Central America as well. You've got the the China-U.S. tensions over Hong Kong, of course, the coast-to-coast race protests in the U.S. All coupled with a what I'll call a hesitant and gradual return in work. Yet the S and P 500 numbers are approaching pre-COVID levels. So, what are your thoughts on the buoyancy of markets, and how would you pair a growth-oriented ETF to catch some of this return when we put it alongside our, our consistent theme of defensive growth? And I'll give that one over to Chris. Thanks.
3: Uh, thanks, Mark. You know, quality and mobile, certainly you know we've been leveraging into them. You know the thing we've been mentioning on the calls is watching you know a couple different exposures for that kind of more cyclical growth. Dividends would be one and value would be the other. You know, dividends is we have a high dividend portfolio. kind of gives you a bit of the value exposure as well. Dividends and value are similar. That's what we want to keep an eye on. You know I think what the way we're looking at it is, still quite early we're getting a lot of kind of good data coming in positive economic surprises you know jobs report was much better than it was expected to be last week. So there's a lot of good things happening. The way you can approach it is, you know, if is you're really constructive again dividends and value have underperformed and that's what a lot of people are looking for. And I think what we're looking at you know in the kind of the call right now and we've, we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks is financial to remember back in the 09 recovery, I remember Canadian banks were the first thing to really lift out of that recovery. So I think, you know, watching financials with the price action they've had, you know, these are kind of like green shoots of kind of a more value or cyclically oriented recovery. So, Canadian banks, um, you know, we've been advocating for those. They've underperformed year to date. They're still 6% under the index, but they've really come along of late. You know, the last two weeks they're up about 20%, whereas the index is up six. There's so a temptation to say, well, you missed out on a 20% return over two weeks. Maybe there's not a lot of juice left on the trade, but you know, I still think there's some good meat left on the bone. Uh, you look at the Canadian banks still yielding about 5% as a group. And if you look at that 5% dividend yield, that's very good in terms of kind of historical levels. You know, a higher yield usually or, you know, indicative of better price returns going forward. So I think the 5% yield is very attractive still, you know, even though we've had, you know, a bit of a run the last couple of weeks, I think it's still an attractive level and points to some upside there. And I'd say the same thing about uh, U.S. financials as well. So, you know, I think financials are going to give you a little bit of cyclical exposure. is a good way to dip that toe into the kind of the growth bucket you know, and just a couple of words on the U.S. banks, you know, they're not yielding too – their yields aren't too shabby either. They're about 3.5% yield right now. It's pretty attractive. I looked at price-to-book on the U.S. banks are at about a one price-to-book ratio. You know, typical average kind of post-2008 post, post 2008 has been around one2 one25 So, you know, again, pointing to, to to perhaps 20 to 30% of upside there. You know, you know, versus maybe 20% upside on the Canadian banks, if that 5% yield goes to a 4% yield in line with historical averages. So I think financials, Canadian and US banks are really nice position to complement the defensive growth and and pick up some of this recovery uh, trade.
2: Right. Thanks for that, Chris. And and good to see the validation of, of that outperformance recently as well, tying into the fact you've been mentioning this for a few weeks now. So moving on. Uh, we've now got all the industry flow information available from the main month end. What jumps out to me when I look at it is a 10 to 1 ratio of equity flows versus versus bonds. Uh, and as well with the majority of those flows going to international markets. This kind of speaks to two things really, to maybe the fear of missing out on the equity side, but on the bonds as well, some hesitancy. You know, and maybe you do see some pockets of opportunity there, but clearly getting overwhelmed by the equity trade uh, when you consider all the market intervention and, and, of course, the low rates. When you look at this, particularly for international equity, what would you recommend to capitalize on this trade flow? I'll give that to Chris McKinney, please.
0: Thanks, Mark. And, you know, we did see, as Chris said um, previously, you know, we have seen some economic numbers that have pointed to, you know, Chris said they were good numbers. I would say they were less bad than expected. Obviously, expectations throughout the month were were very, very negative in terms of job numbers, in terms of GDPs and things like that. And you know the numbers that we did see were were not as bad as expected. And so I think investors in their rush to get back into the equity market, that's what you saw in terms of those flows, you know the market was bouncing back as early as April. Um, investors, to some degree, I think you're right, had that fear of missing out and wanted to get back in. Um, I think the other thing we need to keep in mind, though, while there is a nice bounce back that we do expect coming off the bounce as economies do reopen, you know, we do have some things like the OECD very recently coming out and, and and warning that this could still be the deepest recession we've ever seen in peacetime, um, or at least over the last 100 years um so outside of uh, war related uh, recessions this could be this could be one of the deepest we've seen in 100 years and we do expect there will be some bounce but but that's going to slow down very quickly and so for especially for long-term investors if you're looking to get back into the equity market if you're looking for those international equities you know i'm going to echo what we've said in the past is that you really want to be looking for those quality companies that are going to be able to withstand a prolonged, potentially prolonged economic slowdown. If you look at our European quality ETF, ZEQ, um, it's full of things like healthcare and consumer staples, right? These are the type of companies that we think are are going to continue to generate cash through the current environment and, and through the next few years. So, you know, companies like Novartis and Roche and Glaxo that are doing a lot of work on the healthcare side right now. But then also Nestle, Unilever, L'Oreal, these sort of companies that are offering products that investors are still going to buy, whether there's an economic slowdown or not. So that staple type of company. And we think we think those sort of stocks are, are going to be able to to withstand after we see this bounce and after those positive numbers start to slow down over the next one to two years, thinking up to 2021. If growth does slow down, if the economies don't pick up as much as we thought they might as economies reopen, you want to have your investments in some of these quality stocks that are going to be able to ride it out. All right. Thanks, Chris. Now, that was that was May. If we look a little
2: bit longer at the year-to-date flows, we certainly see a more balanced picture with a slight edge in equity flows going actually to the U.S., and that ties into really the investing trend that's been with us for the past number of years. We know some of the high-level advantages, but if you look to the U.S. market, uh, how would you play this trade and, and complement uh, Canadian portfolios?
3: Thanks. Uh, thanks, Mark. And, you know, perhaps me and uh, McKinney are going to be good cop, bad cop uh, on this call because I'm talking about all the kind of positive surprises. And, and you know, and I and I do fully totally agree with McKinney that it's, it's a cautious growth outlook but, you know, like any good portfolio, you want things in the book that are going to take care of both scenarios, you know, whether that be full or bear. And, you know, we talked about it months ago on the call, quality really doing well in both a full and a bear market for various reasons. So, you know, in terms of the U.S., you know, I would characterize it as a positive economic surprise. The labor market, you know, we were expecting the U.S. to, I believe, lose 7 million jobs, and, and I believe they added 2 or 3 million jobs on last week's job report. So they added, they missed by a cumulative of 10 million. I think it was it was the biggest economic miss since the forecast came out. So we're seeing, you know, improving economic metrics. I think perhaps more important to the short-term psychology of the market is, is you know, I think the stimulus that we're seeing. And it's, you know, I kind of see it as a take-no-chances approach that Powell is going on, you know, in light of improving economic data. He's not Particularly, rationing back any of the stimulus, he's kind of kind of doubling down and saying if there's any time to do it, now's the time. So, those are two um, two reasons to favor the U.S. You know, one other indicator that you know I I just think about personally and looking at our products, you know, the ZGQ, which is the global quality scans, you know, developed in emerging markets, and you know they've been you know the ZGQ have been overweight the U.S. For quite some time. So if you look at global companies on an ROE basis, profitability, consistency of earnings, you know, the best companies in the world are in the U.S. And again, whether it's a bear, you know, a more kind of stumbly recovery or it's a growth recovery, you know, I think I want to be in higher quality companies. You know, if it's a stumbly recovery, I want to be in companies that are generating cash and don't have much debt to service. You know, if it's a growth market, I want to be in profitable companies as well. So. So again, you know, I think U.S. is the center of economic strength, you know, for a Canadian investor, you know, that exposure to large cap IT is obviously a gigantic trade that I think is one that's a secular trade going forward. You know, there's healthcare and infrastructure in the U.S. obviously that we don't have anywhere near the same extent in Canada. So again, ZUQ as the U.S. quality Gives you really good exposure to not just the broad U.S. market, but in particular, large-cap IT and healthcare. Uh, We also have, you know, the global infrastructure ETF that can give you some exposure to there. Just play, play those sectors kind of individually. We have the NASDAQ, you know, ETFs and the healthcare ETFs, you know, both hedged and unhedged that can play that. But, you know, again, just to recap, you know, I think it's the center of economic strength. The best companies in the world are there. You, know, you want to be there, and I think you know ZUQ is still you know U.S. quality getting that exposure to tech and healthcare is still I, I think the preferred approach um, there, and a little bit of low ball to hedge against that, and and perhaps some U.S. banks as well as the satellite. Yeah, a lot of different good ideas there.
2: The clear theme of of complementing a home bias portfolio using uh, an all in one ETF exposure, depending on on what sector you're you're trying to go to.
1: You're listening to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, we encourage you to tune in to our deep dive series, where we take you under the hood of the BMO GAM product suite. Most recently, we take a deep dive into the BMO Canadian MBS Index ETF, ticker ZMBS, a traditionally institutional offering for defensive income in the current environment. For more information, please see the episode notes below. Now back to Mark Race, Chris Heeks, and Chris McKaney. Uh,
2: and Another thing that we noticed year to date is we're now finally seeing the rise of balanced ETFs. Well, certainly they've long been a mainstay in the mutual fund world, but they've not had much of a presence with ETFs, where typically people look for building blocks uh, and more focused exposures.
3: How would you attribute
2: this, this new interest—is it—is it just a rise of products, or are advisors uh, starting to recognize some of the benefits of of using these balanced ETFs? Give that one to Chris McKinney, please.
0: Sure, Mark. And you know, obviously, as you say, balanced funds really have been the bread and butter of the mutual fund world for for probably twenty plus years. And I think you know, obviously, the reason for it is that most investors, to some degree, are are a balanced investor to some degree. Uh, Most investors do have some mix of stocks and bonds in their portfolio, just in varying allocations, depending on how much growth and how much stability they want. And so we are finally starting to see that trickle into the ETF uh, landscape. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, investors, as you say, in the ETF world have been looking for building blocks. They like to do it themselves. They like to build it themselves. Um, or advisors that utilize ETS like to build those portfolios for their clients. But I think what what investors are starting to realize now is that, you know, you can still do that. You have an allocation to a balanced fund and have at least a portion of your portfolio maintaining that discipline of having that proper mix of equities and fixed income and just exposure to those broad asset classes in a very cheap, cost-efficient fashion. And you can build around that with the rest of your portfolio. And so I think that's what investors have been starting to do here. You know, we obviously have our suite of balanced ETFs that we brought out with varying risk tolerances, risk levels. Um, You know, where we've seen the most interest is in our our Z-BAL, the the, the strict balance 60-40 equity fixed income split. And I think, again, that's just a recognition that most investors want some element of fixed income in their portfolio and some element of equities. And so the, the, a portion of their portfolio can be, can be dedicated to that balanced exposure and then they can build around it with, with some of these other solutions we've been talking about. Um, interestingly, if I can just mention one, one other fund that we've seen interest in um, in this space is our, is our ESG balance fund, ZESG. ESG same exposure, 6040 is our balance fund. And interestingly, you know, since it's been launched, it, it has outperformed all other um, similar risk-tolerance type um, balanced ETFs, so s- similar uh, category to it. And we are talking about, is, is ESG that factor? Is ESG making that difference um, in that performance? And, um, you know, it's, it's only been a few months since this fund has been launched, but we're happy to uh, continue watching it and seeing that outperformance persist.
2: All right. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting where, you know, balanced ETFs have so long been ignored, I think people are starting to recognize their use, whether it's for smaller accounts, uh, whether it's for setting a low-cost core, any kind of disciplined core and explorer strategy, they can they can make a lot of sense. Let's turn to uh, a fixed income observation at this point. We're seeing outflows from one of my favorite ETFs, our aggregate bond, dead AG. Uh, even though it continues to do what it should, providing a back to market exposure at a very low cost, in fact, returning just shy of 6% year to date, uh, where of course you've, you've seen the yields come down a little bit and offset somewhat by, by widening of, uh, credit spreads. But when we look at this and consider that, you know, we're not seeing an overall drop in fixed income AUM, where do you see the offsetting inflows and what does that mean for the market? You know, I, I think about finding opportunities in market dislocation. We've seen a lot of activity in fixed income over the last couple of months. So, what have you seen from investors, and in, and in how would you approach this trade? Thanks.
3: Yeah, thanks, Mark. And um, there was an outflow on the that, the aggregate bond, but really wasn't a statement on you know bonds in general. And, you know, in that case, the investor just wanted to take advantage of more precise offerings. You know, actually within our own suite. So. You know, one thing that we're, we're very proud of on the fixed income side is the dissection of the aggregate bond into what we call the three by three matrix. So breaking up aggregate bonds into bonds that are federal, provincials, and corporate, and dissecting those by short maturities, mid, mid-term bonds, and long-term bonds. So creating a three by three grid. You know, what that investor really wanted to do was unpackage so they could slice and dice that grid to get to their desired exposure. Certainly, you know, you look at the value from, you know, a yield to maturity perspective, it's, you know, really skewed to the corporates right now. You know, obviously, durations had a significant rally. Government interest rates are very low right now, you know, with kind of return to quantitative easing um, almost approach. So most of the value is kind of in the corporates. And if you look at the three corporate products, uh, which we have the ZCS, CM, and ZLC, so short, mid, and long, you know, that's where you're getting those yields of two, two to 3%. So, you know, I think that's an area of interest for advisors. Always has been really, um, in my recollection since we have the suite, um, the corporates have always been, you know, a place where investors have been naturally overweight. Uh, but significant value there relative to kind of government level of interest rates. Uh, in short corporates, you know, again, kind of echoing on the call, um, you can, I think you can be very confident there much higher financial weight, banks weight. In the short corporates. you know, we feel very good about banks um, in this environment and navigating kind of an uncertain near term. So that's an advantage. And you have the Bank of Canada doing a, a buying program on corporate bonds that is focusing on bonds of one to five years of maturity, which exactly matches up with ZCS. So I think that's something to look at there. High yield bonds have had quite a rally back. I don't think it's as attractive as it used to be. And and so, um, you know, some kind of ZCS, perhaps some corporate bond would be areas to look at and, and and just to mention Matt Montemore, our fixed income PM, you know, he's really seeing a lot of value there. So I think that's the area to look and that's where we're seeing some more flows come in as well.
2: All right, thanks, Chris. Yeah, you mentioned the uh the sector differences as well. I think that's something that not everybody picks up on, but you do typically see the financials issuing shorter paper, whereas stuff like the utilities is much more available and, and the longer end of the spectrum. So it's, it's a great point that you're bringing forward there. just want to ask one more before we go to the line, more of a, an industry question. Again, thinking about year-to-date and what's been going on in the market, we do see the majority of flows going to the top providers. And to me, that makes sense because known tickers, you know, they develop name recognition and they attract liquidity. And as well, it's kind of consistent with what goes on elsewhere in the world, like the U.S. market. But we're also now up to 36 providers, lots of new product continuing to come to market. How do, how do new providers find success? How does the industry continue to innovate when we consider that ETFs are still, you know, relatively new uh, compared to something like mutual funds? Thanks.
0: Thanks, Mark. And it, yeah, it certainly is getting, um, getting difficult to innovate in the, in the ETF landscape in Canada. You know, to your first question, how do new providers find success? I think it's really coming to the market with a message of, you know, being able to offer something that that is a not currently being offered, but b is something that is in demand from advisors and investors. So something that investors need or want, either to make their life easier when building portfolios or just an exposure that they've not been able to get exposure to to yet. Bemos made uh, our name. On on that innovation theme, I think over the last ten years we've been able to bring out a lot of those unique structures that weren't previously in ETF format or, or potentially in any other format. Um, and and so we we've made a bit of our name, a bit of a name in that space. But it certainly is getting much harder, not with just 36 providers, but with I think eight nine hundred different uh, ETFs listed as well. You know, a lot of that that space is now covered. Just taking a look at the number of ETFs in the US versus Canada, generally, it's a 10 to one ratio in terms of market size and and things like that. But in terms of the number of ETFs, we're we're almost halfway to what the the US ETF uh, industry is offering in terms of total number of tickers. And so there certainly is a lot of space that has been covered here in Canada. But, you know, there are still certain pockets that that Have not previously been explored, or at least not in an ETF format. You know, things that we've brought out recently include our ZMBS ticker. That's the mortgage-backed securities ETF that offers you know AAA-rated investments for a little bit of a pickup over just what federal bonds give you. And so, something that um, is is unique in the ETF world. As well, our, our our more recent premium yield ETF ZPay is the ticker on that one utilizing the options market to have a more uh, conservative exposure to the market and generate a lot of premium on the back of that and, and, and generate some income-for-income-oriented investors. So there are still some spaces for innovation, but we think you know the main thing there is um, not innovating just for the sake of innovating, but bringing out solutions that um, have a benefit to investors or advisors and fit well within their portfolios and, and how they're currently building their portfolios.
2: Yeah. Thanks for that, Chris. A uh, number of great points you bring forward. Number one, you know, I'm, I'm really pleased to see ZMBS MBS come out again, offering something in an ETF uh, that hasn't been available previously, even though, you know, we're, we're on to 25, 30 years of having ETFs in Canada. And as well, your, your U S point, if I look at the size of the U S market at over 4 trillion and we're only 200 billion, you know, when products are two to one, clearly clearly that ratio is uh, far more crowded here in Canada than it is in the U.S. So with that, I would like to check if there are questions on the line for Chris and Chris. Yes, hi. Uh, my name is Mark. Uh, thanks for taking my question. I just wanted to know with the uh, with the massive budget deficits in Canada and the U.S., what do you guys see as potential impact to the yield curve? Uh, I guess,
0: in the short and the midterm, Thanks. The first thing that happens when you you do get these massive deficits is, as well as, you know, the quantitative easing that we've seen, at least in the short end here, is, you know, yield curve will tend to steepen. And we have seen that so far this year. You know, coming into this year, the the yield curve was actually very flat. And then coming out through April, it, it has certainly steepened quite a bit you know, rates across the curve coming down, but coming down more so in the front end. And so leading to higher longer term rates relative to where short term rates are. Uh, I, I think the wild card here, though, that we'll have to keep an eye out for is the possibility of the U.S. introducing yield curve control. So something that the Bank of Japan has been doing for a number of years now is, you know, not just quantitative easing through the purchasing of short term securities, but uh, at various points on the yield curve, up to you know potentially 10 years, utilizing their power in order to really, as as the name suggests, control the yield curve, control where yields are, not just um, the overnight rate, but all the way out to 10-plus years, potentially. And so that could have the effect of re-flattening uh, the yield curve if that does come to pass. Again, we've seen that in Japan for a number of years, and there's been talk that, Europe and, and potentially the US would develop that, uh, adopt that as well. You know, particularly with the US pretty much ruling out negative short term rates, this would be another tool they would have in order to reduce long term uh, borrowing costs. So I think that would be the one thing that we're going to have to keep an eye out for in order to determine what's going to happen with the yield. Yeah, uh, this is Alexia. I have a question.
3: Um, with the with the oil rally we're witnessing, and there's a, also a diminished safe haven demand for U.S. dollars, uh, this allowed the Canadian dollars to return a little bit to a pre-lockdown levels. So right now it's about 134. What are your thoughts on currency hedging going forward? Thanks for the question. You know, I've mentioned on the call before that you know the the overlay of the U.S. dollar and kind of the incidence of COVID in North America is pretty close. So the USD you know, really kind of had that traditional role where you see it as the quote-unquote risk-off currency. When the equity market in March came under, you know, significant pressure as the COVID-related issues built up kind of uh, to a frenzy then, you know, you really saw a rally over a, over $1.40. You know, we saw a lot of interest from advisors to, to start implementing more hedging into the book. Um, I think that was a good call. You know, you look at the, you, you look at that short-term move, it was a little kind of ahead of itself, you know. If stepping back now, you know, we were kind of around a 132 range, kind of prior to COVID. We're, we're only slightly above that now, so I think to to make a strong call on hedging, I, you know, I don't I don't see it as much here. You know, I remember, you know, recall that, you know, U.S. dollars. It's you know, there's no they say there's no free lunch, ex- excluding uh, diversification, right? It's the only free lunch, and keeping a portion of your U.S. equities unhedged can give you a bit of that free lunch through the U.S. dollar. should we have kind of more problems in any way. So I think there's still perhaps a little bit of reversion back to that 132 level. But I think a lot of the meat on that hedging trade is, is probably gone uh, for now. I'd, I'd say, you know, certainly the, the government's policies going forward, you know, might change. So we'll, we'll watch how that's going. But it seems to me that U.S. and Canada are really uh, crisis in a similar way from a stimulus point of view, you know, both definitely taking on large deficits funded funded by borrowing to, to to achieve that. So I, I think there's still maybe a slight bias to hedging, but um, I think starting to turn around now to the point where you want to make sure you have some U.S. dollar loans in your book, give you some diverse, diversification. Thank you.
2: Hi guys, this is uh Scott Rana here. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I just wanted to know really quickly here with ECB talking about uh, deflation. Uh what are your thoughts about uh playing Europe? Uh would you suggest more ZWE or more ZEQ?
0: So in a deflationary environment, um you know, really, you know, cash is king in that in that element. Um you know, you really want to be looking more about fixed income and allocating to income-oriented strategies. And so if you are gonna go into equities, if you're of the belief that deflation is here, particularly in Europe, and you want and you, and you want that equity exposure, you know, really focus on those dividend paying stocks. Get get your dividends, get your option premium. So I, I would I'd be leading to ZWE there. An income oriented equity strategy is, is, is what would do well in a deflationary environment. Something that's gonna give you a regular level of cash flow. Um, again, whether that's through dividends or or through option premiums as well. In the case of ZWE, cash is king in that environment. So the cash generative uh, investments is, is really what you'd be looking for.
2: Can you talk a little bit about fund of funds and the opportunity and what, where you where you see that going in the future? Do you think that's something that's going to continue to grow in in Canada?
0: Is that sort of the the balanced ETFs we were discussing a little bit earlier? Sort of packaging a, a few different funds together into one ticker. I think that that is a growth area for sure going forward, particularly as more retail investors, you know, transition from from owning strictly mutual funds to potentially owning ETFs as well. Again, we think it makes a lot of sense for at least a, a portion of almost anyone's portfolio could potentially be allocated to one of these fund-to-funds, to one of these balanced portfolios, no matter the degree to what you want to be able to build on top of that and, and mix and match for the most part, as I mentioned, you know, everyone to some degree is a balanced investor. And, and so having some allocation to that, I think makes a lot of sense. And, and we do expect that to continue growing. I just, I just add to that. I mean, the the,
3: the fee, you know, like, Let's not be shy. They're very, these products are very, very attractively priced. They give you a good exposure to thousands of stocks and bonds. So, you know, when you're talking about 18 basis points to build a robust portfolio, I think it's, I think it's attractive. So definitely in the ETF space, there's, there's a lot of room to go, in my opinion. So I think it's a lot of value for clients.
2: All right. Well, with that, I'd like to thank everyone for listening in. Uh, and again, thank you for your questions. We we really appreciate your time and your participation. And thank you to Chris McKinney and Chris Heeks uh, for your insights today, your your trade ideas, views on markets, and again, your your participation. We really appreciate it. I'd like to thank everyone again for joining the call. Uh, be safe. Have a good day. And thanks a
1: lot. Thank you to Mark Race, Chris Heeks, and Chris McCaney for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today we heard timely news and commentary on ETF flows, economic data, and market performance. Our experts also discussed the rising popularity of balanced ETFs, which can serve as a foundational building block for advisors when customizing client portfolios. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, please contact your regional BMO ETF specialist. Stay tuned to future episodes by hitting the subscribe button. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, please send them to Andrew Vachon, A-N-D-R-E-W dot V-A-C-H-O-N at bmo.com. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio manager represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time, without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investment should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statements that necessarily depend on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.